When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. How does the offer of free beer sound? Well, in isolation, I think that sounds pretty good, lads. Me too. Yes, please. My brain, who's turning down free beer? Well, well, all you need to do, you can go to www.beer52.com forward slash barmy and you get eight free beers. All you've got to do is pay your postage and packaging. It's like six quid or something. And then you get eight globally sourced, fresh as can be craft beers and they send them straight to your door. I think that sounds pretty good. Amazing. I actually, um, I've jumped the gun a bit, lads, to be to be completely truthful. My eight free beers arrived on Friday, and by Sunday, I only had two left, and it was the two I was putting off, but they turned out to be very nice. Um, I'll be honest, lads, I'm not a massive craft beer drinker. Now, I think I might be because there was a lot of variety, a lot of variant in strengths as well. I saved the 6.8% until the Sunday, but um, very, very enjoyable Slurps and, and a very um, nice way to receive beers. Don't they send them from all different parts of the world? So there's like some from like the Alps, some from New Zealand, the USA, which I'll be honest, aren't, aren't sort of notorious for their amazing lager, but I'm, I'm willing to give it a try. Ireland, Korea, Germany. It's from all around the world, Chris. So I think if you're really interested and you fancy a bit of beer to get you through self-isolation, go to beer52.com forward slash barmy. You get a free case of eight beers for five ninety five postage and packaging. That's beer52.com forward slash barmy. Free beer. Hello and welcome to the Shackles Are Off podcast. Now, this guy is a pretty good guest to get, and it's all courtesy as of a man who this Jack calls Little Jack. Isn't that right, Brooksy? <laughs> little Jack. He's legend in my eyes, not just Little Jack. I call him Sir. <laughs> he, um, Jack Russell is like one of the most iconic England cricketers of the 90s, and um, 
county cricket, England cricket in general. Like he played for so long, but just his character and his professionalism and his his character and his quirkiness, everyone's just drawn to him, and he's um, he'd be an absolutely fantastic guest. But I think we'll find out shortly how much of a natural gentleman he is and how much passion he's got for the game. Um, he's just an all-round great, great man. Yeah, and Chris, you must be really looking forward to hearing from him because we hear so many stories off some of the older Barmy Army members, don't we? All the founding members yeah. who were on, yeah. on on those tours in the mid-90s. And you hear so many stories about you know how eccentric he was. I think we're going to have to try and get to the bottom of some of them. Yeah, I've, I've spoken to a lot of the guys that were on the original tours back in 94, 95, before we've done this podcast. And they all speak so highly of him, just how much of an eccentric he was, but how much um, grit and determination and they also say he's probably the most patriotic and passionate player that they've seen play for England so that's um, really really good coming from the leaders of the Barmy Army from back in the day saying he's the most patriotic man ever to grace the um, three lines so I can't wait to hear from him Love it 54 test matches 40 ODIs he played 465 first class matches Brooksy that's a lot isn't it? I can't count that high can you? (laughs) (laughs) That's a, I mean, that's a lot of games of cricket and also a lot of outings for that bucket hat of his that he so famously dons. Uh, it's a lot of cups of tea, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. It is. We're <laughs> going to have to get to the bottom of some of these rumours. We'll keep this intro short because I'm sure that Jack is going to be a brilliant guest. Just a little heads up. If this is the first time that you're stumbling across this podcast and you are into your cricket, and of course, at, at the moment, as we record this, it's lockdown. We've got so many great episodes, haven't we? We've got Joe Root, Paul Nixon, Liam Plunkett, Ryan Sidebottom, Dominic Best, Dom Sibley, Marcus Triscothic, James Foster, Luke Fletcher, Mark Butcher. We've had Darren Goff on as well on a couple of the tour podcasts. Ian Bell last episode as well. Um, we've had Matt Pryor, Jonathan Trott, Gareth Batty. It's, it's so many cool people we've had on, and uh, we'd love it if you could spread the word. We are also on Spotify as well now. I don't know what Spotify is really, but um, apparently that's a, that, apparently that's a really good thing. So um, you've been living uh, under a rock, mate. Yeah, I don't really know what it. I just, just yeah, I've never, I've never had it. Did you have to pay for it? Uh, there's a little tiny monthly subscription, but as a tight ass Yorkshireman, you wouldn't obviously. I was, okay. was going to say, no matter how little it is, I'm not paying for it. So anyway, <laughs> anyway, we are on there as well. I think um, I think Trez was right. You are a lot older than, than you um, tell everyone that you actually are. Because yeah. you're, you're meant to be a 25-year-old bloke and Spotify is very much part of our era. But is it? You're so, not that age. Nah, clueless. I'm clueless. I'll show you my passport next time, prove my age. Um, but we we shall get on to our next guest on the Shackles Rock podcast. It is episode 17, I think. And it's Woo! 17, look at that. And it is the legendary Jack Russell. I bet you're knocking out a load of those paintings now we're in lockdown. Um, knocking out. I wish I, was knock, I wish I was knocking out, but um, <laughs> I'm painting the ashes from last summer. So they're quite big pictures, like 40-odd inches by 30-odd, and they're just so painstakingly. So I'm, I'm virtually painting every spectator. They're that detailed. So, I mean, it's been about five or six months' work, but I'm, I'm coming towards the end now. So... Um, you know, it'd be great to get the last one done, um, which is Lords at the moment. And you know the pressure when you're painting Lords because you've got that iconic pavilion. Um, yeah. You know, it's got to be spot on because that's the most 
iconic ground in the world. So there's a bit of, you feel like a, the weight on your shoulders to get it absolutely spot on brick by brick. But it's going well. I mean, I've enjoyed it. It's been great. And it was great to be at the, at the Ashes last summer. I was there. That's the first time I've been for a few years since 2005. And I'd forgotten how electric the atmosphere was. You know, it was great. And it was, um, it was a big thrill for me. So I painted the first ball of every Ashes test last year, including the women's Ashes down at Taunton, which was good fun. Um, so I, I've, I've enjoyed it. So knocking out is not quite the right term, but um, <laughs> very busy. I'm, I've already done uh, about nearly three hours painting this morning, so that's that's. Uh, wow. Yeah, I, I'm, I can relax a little bit. I've done a little bit of work. I can I can enjoy myself now. Brilliant. And we were just we were just talking before off air, just you and I, weren't we, Jack? Just saying. So you know, Mr. Brooks, of course, yeah. our other host from when you're at Scarborough, and what a place Scarborough is. Well. I bumped into Jack's parents first. Um, we, we have an exhibition. We go around the grounds with our exhibition, and we're at Scarborough, which is a great place to go, and I, I love it there. Um, it's magic. And then uh, Jack wandered up, um, and I don't think we'd met before. I'm not sure uh, if we'd met before that. We, had, we just had a good chat, and we hit it off. And, I, and his, his parents, I've been chatting to his parents as well. So um, he's not a bad lad, is he? Who, Bro- <laughs> Who Brooksy? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a well, that's a matter of opinion, Jack, isn't it? But, but if, if you say if you say so, we'll we'll take that. He'll do for me. He'll do for me. <laughs> Excellent. I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind keeping wicket to him. I'd have been in the game all the time. I'd have loved it. <laughs> if, if you'd, if, yeah, but Jack, if you stood up to me, I would have felt I would have felt pretty slow. But you're that no, good no, no. Don't you should no, no. Don't get offended. Don't get offended because <laughs> I, I mean, I'm. I did stand up to Courtney, Courtney a few times, um, not that many, but the odd occasion. So you would be in good company, Jack. Don't worry. <laughs> I can't compete with someone like that. Uh, no, you can. <laughs> We'd have, we would have had a lot of fun in the change rooms anyway, Jack, if nothing else. Yeah, that's if, if you could have put up with me. I mean, you might not want to sit near me in my corner. Um, <laughs> you messy, so, you messy. Yeah. You got, I, was, if, if, I, I would advise you to go to the opposite end of the change room, but we'd have had a, we'd have had a good laugh. <laughs> Whose benefit was that for then, Jack? Was that for, more for yours or more for Brooksy's? Uh, Brooksy's, really. Brooksy, yeah. No, no, I get on well with Brooksy. It's going on record now. We get on really well. Even though we're different generations, we, we hit it off. That's yeah, it's, um, it's kind of surreal. Like, obviously, Scarborough is such a fantastic place to play and watch cricket. I didn't realise that my parents had all been over. Um, obviously, Jack's got all these fantastic books and paintings that he sells at the grounds and people can meet him. So, for me, it's a thrill anyway because being someone that grew up watching cricket in the 90s, he was such a big part of that, of his character and his ability. Um, so it's still a little bit surreal for me to meet people of his ilk. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was obviously fantastic to meet him. And my parents all took their badges anyway, but they would have um, spoken to him. I think the mum might have bought a book off him, I'm not sure. But. They definitely, yeah, they bought some, they definitely bought a book. Um, yeah, Jack, you're too kind. You're making me feel old now. Come on. Give me a, <laughs> give me a break here. But uh, you're very kind. Thanks. Very kind. <laughs> Um, oh, no problem, so we, we talked about your art. We talked a little bit about cricket already, but I was going to say, wicket keeping. Obviously, that was probably your first love, I'm guessing, and it's a bit of an art form in itself. Yeah, I mean, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a goalkeeper as well. I mean, I wasn't never quite. I was alright at five aside goals, you know, the low goals, but the big those goals are massive. Um, so I, did, I never grew big enough. But I, I sort of played a lot of sport when I was growing up in the 70s. Now I'm giving my age away. Um, it, and we, our house was either football in the winter or cricket in the summer. That's that was just our house. That was the that was the way it was. And we just I mean, we we play other sports, play a bit of rugby, and um, we used to like a bit of snooker. Um, yeah, anything competitive, you know, we just in, enjoy it. But 
when the cricket started to take off for me and it became a little bit, and people were saying, you're not too bad at it, um, I started to concentrate on it. And then uh, when Alan Knott caught Rick McCosker at Headingley off Tony Gregg uh, in a test match in 1977, I was diving one-handed to his right-hand side and taking a one-handed catch in front of Mike Brearley. That was the moment I said to myself, well, I want to do that. I'm going to actually, I'm, that's what I want to do. And then, so I, I sort of like stopped playing football in the other sports so I didn't get injured and can't really focused on my cricket. And we're talking late 70s now, but um, yeah, so uh, I, I love sport. I love, I'll watch anything competitive. I'll watch a game of Tiddlywinks, I would. If, it's, if, it's, if, it's, if there's a bit of competition going on, you know, it's like, I, you know, I enjoy it. So um, I, I watch a lot of sport on TV when I get a chance and uh, I don't see a lot of cricket these days, apart from when I'm with the exhibitions at the grounds. Um, but I love me football, watch the rugby, watch the, uh, you know, the, the, the Six Nations. The world. Every, I'll watch anything, me. Love it. Jack, Jack, am I right in thinking you actually started life as a bowler um, when you were growing well, up? Well, I did. I used to bowl because at school, I never kept wicket for the school because a, a guy called Pedro Jones used to keep wicket. And he was like the school hardener. So nobody would get, get gloves <laughs> off him because he, he was just like, he, he used to beat the teachers up. I mean, he was that sort of character. But, and he was only like about two foot six. He was so small, but he was like a little terrier. And anyway, so I, and I was captain at school. So I didn't, keep, I didn't um, keep wicked at school. I didn't start focusing on the keeping until I went and played club cricket. Um, my local club, Stroud Cricket Club, decided after 150 years, they'd start a youth team. We're talking sort of mid-centres now. And... Um, Paul, my coach there, he's still he's still alive, and um, we're still in touch. My first uh, youth coach, and and I I used, uh, the, I was used to go down to fine leg in third line and get bored, you know. And I used to, I used to, used to drive me nuts. Plus the fact the kid that was keeping wicket on a Friday night at training, I didn't think he was very good anyway. So I thought, well, I, I've got to have, have, you know have a go at this and um, get involved in the game. So I badgered the coach, and he eventually let me put the gloves on, and I sort of never looked back after that. So. Uh, Thankfully, let me let me have a crack at it. I love that. Yeah, when you when you when you started playing, did you have a goal to be an international cricketer, or did you just want to play for Gloucester and earn a living? Or what were your sort of thoughts back when you started? No, I wanted to play for England. When I when I saw Alan not do that um, at Edinburgh in '77, I wanted to play for England. And then obviously, I mean, I, I call cricket my mistress because it's like I'll always be in love with it. You know, it's like. Um, you know, you go and see it occasionally, but you, you go home to your proper wife and got your, your family and you, you dedicate it to that. I always used to call cricket because I used to, you know, even now I still call it my mistress because I still love it. I'll always love, you know, I've always loved the game. Um, but I, I, I always wanted to play for Gloucestershire, obviously being a Gloucestershire boy. So, um, you know, that was, uh, that, was the, that was the start of it. And I ended up with the, and obviously playing in the youth team and getting, and, and, and working my way through the ranks. But, Gloucestershire was the first step, and you have to play well for Gloucestershire to then play for England. So I knew that was the process. So um, you know, it was in, Gloucestershire was everything to me. So I can still remember my debut. Actually, my, my first ball I kept wicket to in first class cricket went for four buys. I can still no hear it. I can still hear it hitting the advertising balls down at the county ground in Bristol, down in front of the Jessup Tavern. Mike Whitney was the bowler, the Australian. He was he was over here um, in 1981, one of the Gloucester pros, and. Um, Yes, I remember that. And I was still at school at the time, so I was thinking, I don't see anything so fast. You know, it's like, I've just been playing school cricket and club cricket. There's never any sort of speed at that sort of speed. So it whizzed past me before I could move. It was a long way down the leg side. It should have been wide. So I will, I will say that. 
Well, obviously I would. Um, but that was my uh, debut when I was still at school. So um, that was, a, a, I mean, if people say to me, you know, what's your favourite moments or what do you remember? That was always a special moment. My debut for Gloucestershire, which was against Sri Lanka, and then my debut for England, which was also against Sri Lanka in uh, 88. You know, they're sort of things you, you don't forget. So the love has always been there and it will always, um, always be there. Did you have the bucket hat on from ball one? Well, I didn't have the hat in the, on that in that particular occasion um, because I was still at school and I was. I think they gave me a sweater um, to wear. I had to give that back at the end of the game. Um, I think I got twenty five quid for expenses. Uh, that was about it. Travelling expense. And it, so I didn't have the hat then. The hat came in eighty two. I had the hat the first day I, I was a professional cricketer. Um, I was given that hat because Gloucestershire. In fact, several of those hats were given out. And if you look very close on the inside, if you dare go close to it, you'll see, still see the Gloucestershire badge on the inside um, that was that was printed on the front of it. So I, Chris Broad had his for a long time. Actually, he wore he wore his for ages, and uh, even when he went to Notts, I think he he had that on. So it's it's a special hat for me, and I had it the first day. So from the from the start of my first day as a professional to the end of my career, I had the hat, Jack. Yeah, that's fantastic. Nice emotional attachment. Yeah, Where is I it mean, now? Oh, it's, in, it's always got to be in a safe place because otherwise I have a panic attack. Um, <laughs> we, although, having said that, we had an exhibition in London a couple of years ago. It was like it was my 30th anniversary of being a professional painter, and um, Chris Beetle's gallery down in London, in the centre of London, St James's, put on an exhibition, and he he twisted my arm and persuaded me to actually leave the hat there, like for the two weeks of the exhibition, um, <laughs> which was I thought would be like. I just didn't think I'd sleep. I thought I'd be, be so traumatic. But he did lock it in the case, and um, it was locked behind glass, so I, that eased it a bit. But actually, to be honest with you, I was totally relaxed about it. I, I'll be honest, I, I didn't think I would be. I thought I'd be terrified, because I, I never used to leave it at the grounds. Even, even if we were playing at home, I'd take it home with me. I'd have this brown bag, a bit before your time, I'd have this brown bag that I would, um, I'd have my hat and gloves in there, and I'd take that home every night. If we were away in a ho- if we we're playing away, I'd take it back to the hotel with me. If we're flying abroad on tour, I'd have it in the hold. Uh, I wouldn't have it in the hold with me. I'd have it as a hand in my hand luggage. So the hat, which used to cause a problem, I used to have my hat and my gloves under the seat on the plane with me, which used to cause the odd problem because wicket keepers are known for like their kit smelling quite a bit. So I used to it used to cause a bit of a disturbance on the plane. And um, so it, I, it, I've never left it from my side. So it's always in a safe place. That's that's the answer to your question. Fantastic. You took, you took them onto your Sky Mastercast, didn't you? Because that was compulsive viewing. I absolutely loved that. When it got first played on Sky, I think there was a game being played. So we had it on in the changing room. And likes of me and Andrew Hodd, who's obviously a fantastic keeper in his own right, we're just glued to the TV watching you and watching you bring out these old gloves and hats and talking through. It was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, they're sort of... I mean, they're, they're just important bits. Of, I mean, people think it's a superstition. I mean, I only had two... I basically had two pairs of wicket-keeping gloves for over 24 years. I had one pair in the middle for a couple of years um, because I, 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 the pairs... I got given three pairs in the, in the mid-'80s by Bob Taylor. One I lent to somebody who never saw it again. One, I lent, one pair I lent to a keeper, in young lad in New Zealand. I was over there playing club cricket. And I had one pair, which lasted me 10 years. Now, when, when I went back to um, New Zealand in 97, I got, in, I, I got in touch with the young lad. 
we stayed in touch. He, he played for Auckland. Um, he played first-class cricket over there. So we've been in touch over the years with his family and everything anyway, on a regular basis. So I got in touch with him and I, got, I said, look, have you still got those old pair of keeping clubs? Because the pair I had, they'd literally fallen to bits. I made them last 10 years, but they just couldn't go any further. And the pair I had were all right, but they just didn't quite work with me. So I asked him, he said, yeah, well, I think they're in the back of the garage somewhere. I think their thumb's hanging off. There's no webbing. They're in bit. I said, brilliant. Just give them back to me. So I repaired them. And then they, they covered like the last, about the last 10, eight to 10 years of my career. So I basically I had sort of two and a half pairs over that period of time. It's nothing to do with superstition. It's all to do, about, to do with comfort and feel. And yeah. I didn't have a lot of padding in my glove. So if you didn't catch the ball right, it used to hurt, so you, it made, which made you catch the ball properly because I used to catch on feel. So if I was mm-hmm. stood up to you, Jack, I would just, you know, it would it'd all be about feel and reaction and... Um, Sometimes you don't even see it, you know, because bowlers bowl so bowl so quick, or you get you get um, you lose sight of the ball, and sometimes it just hits the hand. So the feel thing was important for me. Some keepers like a lot of padding, like Alan Knott used to like a lot of padding, but people like Bob Taylor, who never even had a webbing in his gloves, um, used to like thin gloves. So I was a, I used to like my gloves thin variety and uh, feel. So it's nothing to do with superstition, and the hat might feel like it's superstition but actually it was a, there was a reason to it because it was it was comfortable um and it you know, all your kit has to be comfortable nothing you know you've got to work with all your kit you don't want your kit fighting you don't be fighting kit you have enough <laughs> trouble fighting the opposition and bowlers and and that sort of thing so it it's um it, it, people say it's all superstition but there was there was a logic to all of it that's fascinating it is brilliant. It's such a different game now to what it was, you know, when you started, Jack, isn't it? In such a short space of time, really, it's just gone from being, you know, perhaps not the most professional um, of, of, of sports to, to now being, you know, I suppose when you when you retired, it was, you know, quite fitness heavy and all that kind yeah. of thing. How did you adapt to that? Because in the 90s, it changed an awful lot, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, when I, my first pre-season was started the 1st of April and we had, we played football for a week and then we went into the nets for a week and that was it. Then you get on with the season. And my last pre-season started in the October before the following season. So that just shows how much it had all changed. I mean, I was only ever on a six-month contract. We just in, When I first started, it, it was professional, but it was sort of like semi because... You used to have to get a job in the winters. You know, you'd have to find yourself another job. So, I mean, luckily for me, the, the art came in and, um, and and took off. But it would be take off and do odd jobs, work in a pub. Go, we used to go abroad. The young guys would go abroad and play cricket. Um, so it was that sort. And used to just our pre-season would would be a Monday night winters net for a couple of hours. But pre-season would start on the first of April and um, you're virtually straight into the season. But in my last. Um, my last pre-season started in the October, so you know that was that's the difference in the professionalism. I mean, I don't remember weights coming in until the 90s. You know, I'm talking about gym work. Um, Graham Gooch was probably the first person with the England team I saw carry a pair of weights and do we do training. Um, we're talking 90s, so it's it, it, it has changed a lot, definitely. Does that inspire you to get in the gym, Jack? Well, it's funny that, Jack, uh, the gym, <laughs> I was never a big fan of the gym, but I, what I did, and I, and I actually I tweeted to the Gloucester lads recently who were doing their bleep test and their, um, their, their their pre-season training a few months back. I said, I used to use that as a motivation to so that I would catch more catches and score more runs. You know, the fitter you are, what you can't afford is fatigue. So, you know, I used to, I used to sort of, 
kid myself that it would help me play better. And that going through the pain in the gym work, um, you know, that used to get me through it. So I, that was the motivation for me. You know, if, mm-hmm. if you if you go through the pain, the, the pain gave you more runs, more wickets, more catches, more stumpings, more glory. That's what I used to used to sort of keep me going. But I, I, when I retired from playing, Jack, I decided to give myself a year off from the gym. This was 2004, and I've got to admit, I've not been back since. It's been 15 years now. Is it? 15 years off. But I, have, I, do go, I, have, I have started walking. I do go walking now, and I, 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 I like climbing mountains and that, so I do a little bit of fitness. But it's probably better than going to the gym, that, Jack. I like that. Um, hey? <laughs> it's probably better than going to the gym, climbing a mountain, I've got to say. Um, I, I stopped taking the um, you um, how did you cope then? You know, when you were kind of going to these places like Pakistan and Australia, where where it was red hot, um, how was that? Because nowadays they kind of acclimatised to it, and the, the, you know, because they're so fit, they kind of have all these things. What was it like for you and your teammates when you headed to the subcontinent, for example? Well, it it's sort of in my first tour with England was in '97, Mike Gatting, and. Um, you know, that was the big argument whether they all score. And um, we basically, we were given a letter saying, you've been picked for the tour, the flight's on this day, see you at the airport, don't forget your passport. That was basically, <laughs> that was basically the pre-tour <laughs> preparation. Um, and I didn't know anything different. So I, I, I used to, I, I knew Pakistan would be a hot place in places. So I would go into the local sauna in Bristol and with all my kit on, my batting kit, helmets, and everything, and just play a few shots and uh, do a few exercises and be in there for an hour or two. And people used to look at me like I was like this bloke is like totally crazy. What is this guy doing? <laughs> I'm not back, he, Yeah, even the local TV filmed it one night, and it was on the new local news. So I think I think the world knew then I was a little bit crackers. But um, it was my it was the only preseason tour preparation that I had. Um, but we used to in those days the tours you would be there a little while before. You play the first games. They don't do that so much now because they just fly in and fly out. But you just had to get acclimatised over a couple of weeks and then and then start playing matches. But the later tours, when Graham Gooch um, uh, was captain, we would go to like places like Lillyshaw and we'd do like a session a couple of days every week, like for six weeks before. So we, there was some sort of professionalism, some preparation in terms of fitness and technique um, in getting ready. But that didn't come on until we talk in 90s now. In fact, Graham Gooch is the first person I think I ever saw carrying a pair of weights in the in the uh, in the change room because he was a he used to run for miles and use his weights a lot. So, 90s things started to change a bit and people became more professional. How how did you deal with um, tours back then? I know you're immensely private and a good family man, but how did you deal being away from everyone and talk us through the. Um... Your dietary requirements with the baked beans and everything. Oh, Jack, no, don't go there. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, well, to be honest, I'm a bit of a home bird, and I do love being at home. But I was playing for England, so I, I mean, that was I was just proud to be doing that, and I was chuffed to be doing that. My first tour was Pakistan. I didn't. I was reserve keeper to Bruce French, and um, I played two and a half days in eight weeks. That was my. That was my. I wasn't down to play any any games at all, um, and so all I would do on that that particular trip because all you could do was practice and then go back to the hotel so i used to go out sketching because that's when my art took off was it on, on that mm-hmm. tour and um but obviously the, the the dietary things i'm very fussy eater jack as you might well know 
Um, there's the odd rumour out there that I like things done in a certain way, like Weetabix and that sort of thing, and baked beans. Um, I deny it all, but even though it is true, um, it, it's sort of like I used to get food shipped in. I mean, I think I still think there's a box of Jaffa cakes actually on the runway at Peshawar. Um, <laughs> they got left there because it was like the, the box of Jaffa cakes cost like 20 quid, but they wanted about 100 quid on duty to get them through customs. So I thought, oh, you, you can keep them, keep them, you can eat them. I don't want them. But we used to ship food in. Um, and on that tour, the, the microwave was a very important piece of kit. So I used to be microwave monitor. So the microwave used to come to my room. I used to make sure it got from, you know, on the air, on the airplane from ground to ground, from uh, hotel to hotel. So I, I was in charge of that. But I've had, yeah, I've, known, I've had been known to fly in the odd uh, uh, crate of baked beans and, and that sort of thing to keep keep things going. Definitely, yeah. I'm not fussy, Jack. Really honest, I'm not. <laughs> that's, that's, that starts off. I mean, look, you know, there's there's lots of kind of legendary things around you, Jack. Porridge for eight minutes exactly. Tea bags nailed to the dressing room wall. Blindfolding people into your house. The detail to minutiae, I kind of see it as professionalism, but others probably would think it's a bit eccentric. And I'm definitely not expecting you to comment on whether that's true or not. Some well, of those things. Well, I'll be honest with you. I think it's all normal. That's and that that is probably. Therein the, lies the problem, um, because everyone else thinks it's eccentric, and I think it's straightforward. It's what I need to do. Um, the, it's Weetabix has got to be for 15 minutes soaked in milk before we come off for lunch. Um, I'll accept 12 minutes, um, but no less. And the 12th men, all the 12th men cheered when I retired. I could hear them all shouting around the country, thank God he's left us. We don't have to do those Weetabix anymore. Um, yeah, and I, I have had people blindfolded to the house because they didn't want the pressure of knowing where I live. So they used to make me blindfold them. So it was sort of like, that they, so if, anybody, if they got interrogated by the press or anything, they, 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 didn't, they literally, they weren't lying if they said they didn't know, you know. Um, and yeah, tea bags and that sort. Of, but I just sort of like a bit of a. You know, I just like my home comfort. So uh, yeah, but the wheat mix was important because I used to have that at lunch um, uh, as, as carbohydrate uh, with honey on. So that had to be. If it was crunchy, I used to get a bit annoyed. So the twelfth man would do a runner if he'd forgotten. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know. Let's say they had forgotten, for example. Yeah. I know that you're such a professional that you probably wouldn't have let it affect you, but in the back of your mind, and you've had some really crunchy Weetabix at lunchtime, and you get into the middle of the afternoon session, is it still grating on you? Uh, no, no, I'm not. I wasn't that sort of. I would, I, I would get, I would get annoyed. And might there be, might be a few, ex, few expletives flying around the change room, but <laughs> I, I would make do. I would just sort of like. Because at lunchtime, I'd have to get all my wet kit off. Jack, Jack knows what I'm talking about. You've got to get all your wet gear off, get it dried. Or I used to just get my wet gear off and put new gear on. Because I used to have a, a shirt for the morning session and a shirt and underwear and um, undergarments for the afternoon and uh, after tea session. So, um, you know, I, all my kit was laid out on the, on the pegs. So I used to have a minimum of four pegs and it was all laid out. So I used to come in. So I, the, the Weetabix would have been soaking while I was getting changed, so I probably would have got away with it. But, um, no, it wouldn't have affected me too much. And if I'd, if I'd have been – no, I don't think it ever did affect me. But I would have been made sure I'd have got the Weetabix and probably shoved a couple of bananas down as well at the same time. Fantastic. Just being organised, I think. Just don't compromise. I use four pegs. I like my kit laid out, and I change my shirt and my socks every session. So. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just sort of um, what, what works for you, isn't it, really, Jack? Exactly, yeah, I think. 
it's um, everyone's got their own quirky little ways of doing it. If everyone's the same, it's boring, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no don't be boring. Try and be different. But it's all. Jack. It's yeah. <laughs> now this is um. Uh, we're talking about touring. I would like you to take us back to day five in Joburg '95 because um, we we always tell a funny story about Merrick Pringle um, being drunk on the straw rum the day before in the Rattlesnake Diner. Now, <laughs> we know what happened on day five. I'd like you to talk us through it first and see if the, um, it all comes together in my head. OK, is that the reason he dropped me caught and bold then? <laughs> Definitely. That, that's, got, that's got to be the reason then, isn't it? That, that, that answers that question. Now, what, well, the, the, what happened was, we obviously, most people know, but we were trying to save the game. Mike Atherton had been battened from lunchtime the day before and I went in uh, during the first session on the last day uh, Robin Smith got caught third man which he would often do um, uppercutting one and um, I got to the, I remember walking down at jo- Joburg it's like a, for those that don't know well, a lot of the Barmy Army fans will know and a lot of spectators will know there's like a uh, you walk down into like an arena and it's a bowl because they're changing yeah. the bank a bit and, and it's like this tin roof uh, corridor and that, that so as you walk down, it's a bang, 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 and that's like deafening before you even get down to the pitch. And as mm. I walked out, and they, they used to give me a bit of stick in those days, and so that all the crowd would like bark and make dog noises. So that used to wind me up and get me going. Um, and then I got when I got to the wicket, I could I, Athers was still there, and he said the usual good luck, Jack, and yeah, you, know, you keep going, others. But I could see in his eyes that he was going to do it. I just I could he he looked totally in control. I thought, God, he's been there over a day now already. He's going to do the second day. So I thought, well, somebody needs to pull their finger out here and just stay with him. Um, and he was the inspiration, really. So I went back and took guard, and I thought, right, all I've got to do is be naught, not out at the end of the day. That's all I've got to do. Naught, not out, job done, because others is going to stay the other end. And um, yeah. so that, that was basically, he was the inspiration. And I just took it ball by ball, really. Um, and people always... It's one of the few, one of the, the things that people chat want to chat to me about most is they, they they mention three things. They either mention my painting, my hat, or Johannesburg. Those are the three things that I get regularly asked about. And um, you know, people, so people chat to me every week. Somebody chat to me about Joburg, and it was just one of those days where I was just sort of I thought, well, somebody's got to dig in and just stay with him. So I just took it ball by ball. I literally did not take it any further than every single ball. And then I hit a fall later on after tea. I hit, I hit a boundary. I thought, what are you doing? What are you doing, Russell? You should be blocking. You're supposed to be blocking Norton. How I got to 29, I just do not know. But um, there are two things that happened in that. And one was I chipped a front edge over short leg. I just turned the face a bit too early. It went up and it landed in between three fielders, like that by about a yard. I thought, crikey, that's, that, I'm lucky to get away with that's an omen. And before lunch, this was as well. I, I knocked one straight back to Pringle, and he yeah. dropped it. It's quite an easy one, really, because I, I, I was only blocking. And I look on that now, and, and you, you see it on the video and the replays. It's been on Sky quite a bit. And the, 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 uh, the, the, all the heads yeah. of the South Africans just dropped. Oof, their heads hit the floor. <laughs> Those were two quite pivotal moments in the, in the afternoon, probably in the game, because others was going was to do his bit, and somebody had to stay with him. So... I was lucky enough to get away with those two mistakes and um, managed to stay until the end of play. And I remember right at the end, Daryl Hare was the umpire and he's, he's taking the bails off. And I'm going, 
And I wanted to say to him, what are you doing? What do you think you're doing, taking the bales off? I said, we're going to, we, others and I are batting here for a week. I'm telling you, we're going to stay here for a whole week. And, um, and I, then it, it dawned, because I was so engrossed, I was so focused, and in a, in a, in a, in a zone, a mental zone, that I, uh, I was going to stay there with others, that I, I actually nearly had a go at Daryl Hare. What do you, you know, put the bales back on, you know. It, and then we, we sort of what, shook hands and wandered off. And then it all dawned on us. Others and I, about halfway off, we got mobbed by the Barmy Army and loads of English fans. And uh, you could see the great photos of us running across the field, you know, off, the, off the pitch, with just surrounded by people and um, England fans. And it was at that moment that it sort of dawned on me what we'd actually actually achieved. Well, others, I only I just did the one day, lads. I, did, I only had the easy bit. Others did the two days. So all credit goes to him. He just uh, put somebody up to stay with him. Yeah, just the one day. Dear just me. the one day. Have you heard yourself? <laughs> just the one day. I love that. Yeah. That's brilliant. What's it, what's it like though? You know those moments of elation and you know being surrounded by all the supporters. That's probably what you get into the game for, isn't it? I'd, I'd imagine you know that, that one moment. And if you could bottle that up, I'm guessing that would probably be the one moment that you'd choose to bottle up and relive again, Jack. Or, or I might be wrong. Yeah. No, no, you're right. The, the fans are everything. The fans. You know, I know we're stuck in this lockdown at the minute and the lads might have to play behind closed doors. I mean, maybe Jack can chat about that in a minute and um, explain. Because I, if I was in the, the players' boots at the moment, I'd be going nuts not being able to play. That would just drive me crazy. And then to I know we, we have played, I have played in grounds where there's not been people there, but it's not quite the same. You know, even, when, even at Gloucestershire, when we were, we, we talk about those four or five years we had it towards the end of my career where we were winning trophies all the time one-day trophies, and it's like we always talk about the spectators. We always talk about the fans, you know, the memories of the fans, because they're so important to us, and a lot of them are so close to us. So when you're running off um, at a game like Johannesburg and the fans are, like, mobbing you, and it's like you think, crikey, we've done so much special here. And it's something that they can enjoy. So the players, well, I used to find it, the players, I know I'm a bit of a recluse and I stick to myself and I don't go specialise a lot, but... I always got on well with the fans, and I always enjoyed being with the fans. And I, there's like a, it's like you're in it together. It's quite, a, it's quite a, a special thing. It's hard to describe it, but it, it's sort of yeah. like magic. So the fans are critical, and it, I remember the Barmy Army starting in the mid '90s. I was playing then. That's and right. Suddenly yeah. You get, yeah, suddenly you're getting all these crowds and playing loads of fans. You know, you go to places like Barbados, and it's like a home game. You know, '94, '98, it was like a, they were like home games. Um, and the players love that, and I know genuinely. You listen to players talk about it; they do genuinely appreciate the, the the time, the money, the effort, and the support of all fans. Even county cricket fans, Jack will tell you, and the lads will tell you that you, know, you get spectators that follow you everywhere. Um, they're always at the games, and it's like they're special people. You know, the game wouldn't be the same without them. So they are their magic. Yeah, that's the, that's what you play for, isn't it? Do you remember the Barmy Army starting in that kind of? You know, yeah. and, that, and that tour, isn't it? Because it must have been a bit odd because obviously there's been loads of England supporters before that, but then having like a core group who were making the atmosphere almost like you said, like a home game. That, that, must, yeah. have, that must have been a, a real cool thing. Yeah, well, I remember I was on the, uh, I think it was 93, 94. I got called in as reserve because Alex Stewart broke his finger on the Boxing Day test and Steve Rhodes... Uh, was keeper and I got I got called out on Boxing Day to fly out, and I remember I think that was the first time I can remember uh, it sort of the term Barmy Army 
being being yeah. bounded about, and also the fact that there were so many fans, but they weren't just fans, but they were noisy fans. You know, they were cheering and shouting. It was like singing, and uh, and yeah. it just sort of. And it's, I mean, it's amazing what they do now. It's just uh, sometimes I just watch the cricket and listen to the Barmy Army. I do. I just put it on and listen. I do. I just I listen to them singing in Jerusalem and all. It's just like, oh, it's fantastic. So I remember it starting then. It, 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 I don't know if I've got that right. That's my first memory. That is and then right, obviously, that, yeah, 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 90, 95, uh, 96 was Johannesburg, and it just and it got it, it had grown by then. It was it, the army was swelling, and um, I just remember it being. I just think it was fantastic. I'm not those. And there's, I know there's thousands of them now, but the, the, if you think about the, the air miles that those people have done over the years, you know, I, somebody should total it up because I tell you, it's got to be millions of air miles. <laughs> yeah. it, it will be, Jack. The, it will be. It, it will. And be, now, the um... players love it. Players love it. Fantastic. 25 years on, Jack, you're on a Barmy Army podcast. Who'd have thought? Well, who would have believed it? <laughs> <laughs> the fact I'm on a podcast to start with is like a, a bit of a revelation because I don't do anything like modern or or uh, it's, uh, this sort of technology is a bit beyond me. I mean, the fact I'm on a phone is... I don't normally use the phone. Um, but having said, that, having said that, I do I do, do Twitter. So I'm, I'm, that's about my only sort of uh, modern thing that I do. I do do Twitter. Um, so I, 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 I look at that most days and have a bit of fun with that. That's good fun. It's nice to stay in touch with people and see, also see what's going on. So that's about the limit of my expertise. So the podcast, I can now tick off podcast. So if I've done a podcast, I, I've now I've done that one. I've got the T-shirt for that. I've got the Barmy Army T-shirt for the podcast. That's what I've got. I'm sure Chris will stash you out in uh, various... Army Army attire, probably try and get you on a tour one, one winter if yeah. you're keen for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I would go and paint somewhere anyway, so it would be great for me. Um, that I'd mix it. all Incredible. that in. So, there we go. Yeah. It's about time I go. painted the, I painted the, about time I painted the Barmy Army on tour. That would be a, that would be an experience, wouldn't it? Oh, that'd be awesome. Hey, Jack, you, you, as soon as we can tour again, you can, you can come with us by all means. We'll get you there. Yeah, you're on, you're on. I love that. That sounds, that sounds Jack, great. I'd just like to touch on a story, Jack, that I've uh, read an article online when you played against the Aussies in 89. Yeah. In match. And you turned up nets and um, had the ground staff boys throwing plastic balls at you, you without a bat. You're just ducking and diving. Yeah, um, yeah. And then you had to go through a load of sledging from the Aussies and you, you got some runs and they never sledged you again. Can you just talk us through some yeah, things what, that what were said from you and them yeah. and what happened? Well, uh, I'll tone it down a bit, but what I, what I will say is that... Um, that was the 89. That was my first Ashes series. And I'd only played one test match the year before. It was my debut. And we played at Headley and we got bowled, We got rolled over. We lost the first test at Headley, And the, the papers were slating us and we're all getting a, a slating. And um, a big big piece of... Uh, it, it was He did me a favour, really. He put a big article in there. The, the Aussies are going to bounce me out. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. Because I'd, I'd, I'd got bounced out of the uh, Headley. And I hadn't got bounced out of Headley at all. I hadn't got, even got hit. Um but it was just, a, and this was like the, the couple of days before the test. And I thought, hang on a minute, they're going to, Murph Hughes here and Lawson and those guys, they're going to let me have it. I better do something about it. And Alan Knott was the England keeping coach at that time, which was good for me uh, from a keeping point of view. But he was a brilliant batsman. He was a genius with the bat. So yeah. him and I got in the nets. And we used to turn up the day before mine for the test matches then. Used to, if yeah. it was a Thursday, you'd, come, you'd turn up Wednesday lunchtime, you'd have a net, and then you have a team meal, and and you get on with the test. That was your test match preparation. That's what it was like then. So I mean, the game at Lords was the second test. I knew they were going to bounce me. So Clive Radley was the um, was the uh, MCC yeah. ground staff coach. 
good old Clive, uh, ex Middlesex. Yeah, he's a nice player, guy. And top man. And it, 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 we got Alan and, and uh, Clive got the ground staff to bowl off 18 yards with rubber bouncing these rubber balls. And I used, I spent about three hours in the nets just ducking and weaving. In fact, I was, I was, I was almost late for the team meal at uh, seven o'clock, and uh, just got there in the nick of time. Um, so I remember that sort of preparation. So I thought, right. And also, I'd worked in a few uh, few shots. I was just wasn't just ducking and weaving. I, I worked in the uppercut. What I was going to play, what I wasn't going to play, what I was going to leave, what I was going to hook and not hook, because um, I wasn't really looking to hook. Um, but if there was an uppercut shot, especially if somebody's bowling from the pavilion and, and, he, and you can cut it down towards that nursery corner down the yeah. down the slope a bit and use the height and hit it over the field as even at cover, um, then I would do that. So Merv Hughes, Dickie Bird was umpiring and Merv Hughes was bowling from the pavilion end and I, I must have got 20 or 30 or something. And uh, I might even have got to 50 at that stage. Um, and I thought, I've just had enough of this. I have just had enough. So I turned around and I just told him to off you big fat lump and just get on with your bowling. And then I, the, then I went back down the other end. And I know I ever cut him over the slips for a four and um, got a few off his next over. And after that, they never said a word to me. And I think that was just down more down to respect than they weren't frightened of me, but it was just to respect. Because I think they'd worked out actually that actually having a go at me was actually helping me. It was firing yeah. me up a bit. Um, so it, I think that's, you know, that's that's as I remember it, what happened. And they didn't say anything to me for the rest of the series. And I'm it's the most important innings of my career because I got 64 not out. If I'd have yeah. not got any runs that game, uh, I think I would have been dropped in my England career. Would have been like been like three games. And later in the series, I managed to get 100 at, uh, at Old Trafford. So people talk about the 100 at Old Trafford, but actually it was the 64 not out because we got bombed yeah. out on the first day. It was actually quite a key moment. But thanks to Alan Knott and Clive Bradley, I managed to get some preparation done. Brilliant. I suppose that's really lovely that um, the Aussies, particularly then when they were used to probably beating England, um, or just before they started to beat England regularly. Yeah. You know, you have their respect, and they would never say that to you again. It must be quite a real nice little pat on the back for you. Yeah, and now you've I, gone I about your business. Yeah, and I tell you what happened. They didn't talk to us for that series, right? They they made it. They we smashed them in eighty whatever eighty seven six seven whatever, yeah. when when England went down there and we smashed them. And Border came and he sort of like said, "Well, we've had enough of that. We're not going to be mates." And a lot of the Aussie guys, England guys, were mates, you know. Yeah. And I, I in Terry Olderman actually play, I played the year before with him at Gloucestershire, so he was a mate of mine. But they, Alan Border made sure the team did not um, socialise with us, didn't even speak to us. I think uh, Terry Alderman said good morning to me under his breath one morning, passing him on yeah. the steps at the pavilion somewhere, but there was no uh, interaction. It was like they were on a mission. And then when I got my 100 at Old Trafford, Alan Border came up and shook my hand. And I thought, I've still got that photograph. And that was like, I thought, wow, you know, I wasn't even expecting that. But he came up to me because it was my first first-class 100 as well. Um, so he came up to me and shook my hand. And uh, it's sort of like... You're right. It's sort of things like that. You, 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 they sort of mean a lot, and the, you, the things you, like you don't forget. So to get respect from them um, is is everything, really. Yeah, of course. Fantastic. You, I mean, you had some great characters in that dressing room, as well as yourself, obviously. But there was some some brilliant. I mean, Phil Tufnell springs to oh, mind. For don't example. go there. Don't go there. Don't oh go there. come on! Now you're saying that it's making <laughs> me want to even more. <laughs> well, tough. <laughs> Uh, Tuffers, we all love Tuffers because he's so funny but he is just genuinely a nice guy and he's magic and on tour 
I mean, in terms, I'll tell you what, I will say one thing. In terms of it being, he's the best spinner I kept to, no disrespect to the other spinners, because he just had the ball on a, on a, on a string. You know, Alan Lamb used to stand at slip going, just keep the flight. You know, same flight, cat, same fly. You know, it was like fly fishing. And you just tease and tease and tease. And he, he hardly ever bowled a bad ball. And he was just, he, to, to keep wicket to him was fantastic. But off the field, basically, he was a nightmare. Um, because he, he didn't want to practice much. If I got six balls out to keep to him in the morning before the game that I'd done well, right? So he didn't want to bowl too much. And I always used to call him Quasimodo because we used to play at Lords with um, uh, against Middlesex. He would always he, he would cover. Uh, you see him on the morning. It's like he'd slept in the pavilion all night, but he had he had to, he had to, because he had to sleep in the pavilion because it, that was like his sanctuary. It was like Quasimodo in Notre Dame. Right, it was tougher in the Lord's Pavilion because women weren't allowed in the pavilion then. So he used to sleep in the pavilion, so he didn't get caught by his I mean, whoever wives he had, like chasing him for money and that sort of thing. <laughs> so it was like I used to call him Quasimodo because every he used to, to you know August shrivelled in the morning. You used to see him like still half asleep, you know, one eye open, and uh, as he wandered out to sort for a so-called warm-up. But yeah, Tuffers was was great. He's I love him to bits. I'll always love him. He's magic. Yeah, he seems like a great character. And some brilliant players as well. A lot of people talk about the 90s as being, you know, not a great era for English cricket. I completely disagree. You know, I, you look back on it and there were some brilliant players yeah, and some great yeah. moments as well. You know, we've already spoken about a few. But, I mean, you suppose you can't choose the era that you played in, but you must have absolutely loved every single minute of it. 54 tests. I mean, it's not a bad, not a bad effort, is it, Jack? No, no, and people—I get people say to me, "Oh, you should have played more." And we feel sorry. I said, "Don't feel sorry." I played fifty-four. That's two more than Don Bradman. Yeah, I'm just a grubby-haired—I'm just a grubby-haired little school kid from a council house. That's basically, and I played fifty odd sets and forty odd one day. So, I'm, and when we didn't play a lot of one day, so I've got no—there's no bitterness from me, at, you know, at all whatsoever. But going back into the nineties, we had—it was—it was a bit of a topsy-turvy time. There were, we had sort of some low moments, but. There was the, the high, makes the high moments feel even more magic. You know, we had some good moments. The odd game here and there, we, we had some great wins. You know, um, and, and there's been a few Barbados '94 comes to mind. And uh, in 1990, we won the first Test at Jamaica at uh, Sabina Park. That comes to mind. So there was a lot, and, and there was a lot of characters then um, yeah. as well. So I was thinking about in the, being in the change room at Lords, sat between Botham and Lamb. That. For five days, that's a week, right? Now that is a nightmare. That is a nightmare because you know you get to, you come to change on an evening and you, the the ends of your socks will be they'll be gone. They've just cut holes in your socks. Or like you put your, you've got a new suit, right? And you've got like your your blazer on, your England blazer, and you've got your new and there'll be holes in the knees. You know what I mean? There's been like and bits of kit missing. I said, well, look, whatever you do, do not touch my hat and gloves. You can do what you can burn the rest of my gear, right? But do not touch my hat and gloves, which they never did, thankfully. But those, the characters in those change rooms, especially if it was raining, it, no wonder I t- became an artist, you know, when it was raining at cricket matches, because you just get away from the, the lunatics in the change room, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> what That's do you brilliant. think of the game now, Jack, when, when, when you look at it? Do you still enjoy it? Is there still a thirst and a passion to, to watch it? Yeah, I still love it. I, love, I still love it. I don't miss it. I actually don't feel like, I don't think I need to get out there. I'll put, I'll, when the Aussies are in town, I get a bit itchy. I must admit. Or if a keeper does a keeper does something brilliant, um, like you know, brilliant stumping or something, I think, oh, you know, that's magic. And and I, I still lo- I love the game, but I don't miss it. I think it's because I'm painting all the time, and I've got my other career. It's sort of like filled that gap. 
I think the players that struggle are the guys that um, that have got nothing to go to. That's why the PCA is brilliant now. You know, yeah. there's a fantastic facility there for players to actually prepare um, for what they do when they finish playing. In, in, when I was playing, the PCA, we had one meeting a year and that was it. That was the union meeting and that was it. So fair play to the PCA. What they do is absolutely unbelievable and it's actually very important. Um, yeah, so, but, but I'm not sure I'd... If, I'm not sure I'd want to play for England today. On, on a, I'm just so pleased I played when I did. It's not. I'm not trying to say my year was better. It's not. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, you know, if I was England contracted player and I couldn't play for my county, I think that would drive me absolutely crazy. You know, if I couldn't yeah. play every game for my county, I, that would. I, I wouldn't enjoy that at all. Um, sure. And the scrutiny now, the scrutiny in the game with the cameras and everything. I'd still wear me dark glasses, but the cameras now, like, they can look through them, you know, so like, I wouldn't be able to hide my emotions in my eyes, you know, so it's like <laughs> they get so close to you and the scrutiny now is very intense. Um, I'm pleased for the players can earn a living, uh, even in county cricket, there's a decent living for England. Um, you know, if you play for England for five or ten years, you should be made for life. You know, if you're careful with your money, you know, you should be set up because the the that situation's good now. So those guys, I feel I'm pleased for those guys. Um, uh, and the other thing I find a little, I would I would struggle with. I'd have to get around it and sort it out and deal with it. Would be the third up the, the reviews with the third umpire because basically the keeper these days you, you you've got to be an extra umpire for the captain because you're in the best position and the pressure of that and the actual um, having to deal with that. You know that would be a challenge to sort of get your head round. You know, you're not just catching a ball anymore. You're actually looking for other things at the same time, which comes to you naturally anyway because you're in that position. But, you know, if the captain comes up to you and says, was it going down or going over? You know, blimey, you've got to know. You've got to know for sure, you know, because maybe the test match might depend on it. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I, but we still have a lot of fun with the lads, won't we? The lads, you know, yeah. we, still have, we still have a lot yeah. of fun in the change room. Yeah. What, what do you think to the current... England wicket-keeping situation, we've obviously got a lot of very good wicket-keepers that are also very good batsmen. That's obviously a blessing, but what's your opinion on that? Well, to be honest with you, I actually don't worry about the keeping situation because I think we've got enough talent. It, 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 if, if there was no... Uh, the, the competition's really good. The competition is very hot. You know, the keepers have got to keep well and score runs. Um, otherwise, somebody else is going to take their place like in an instant. I think the keeping side of it is healthy. I think there are keepers not playing for England that could play for England in playing county cricket. I mean, you've yep. got the young lad, Ben Folks, who's played a little bit. Um, he's a natural talent. He's a naturally gifted keeper. He can also bat. You've got John Simpson's very good at Middlesex. Cox at Worcester. I mean, I don't want to go, I don't want to pick out too mm -hmm. many names, but there are a lot, there's a lot of talent there. Um, and so I, I, I just sit back in my armchair now and enjoy watching them keep wicket. It's great. And I, and I love it. The, 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 whether you say Bairstow or Butler or who folks mm -hmm. is I mean that's the there's arguments on both sides um, yeah I just I just love the beauty of the competition I think what the other thing that has changed is the keepers I mean it, it, even when I was playing the keepers had to score runs um, and, it, and that became more prevalent as through the 90s and then on from there but Alan not started that in the 60s and the 70s so that's always been there but now it's not and I, but I think Gilchrist took it to another level in terms of the batting and he became what I've termed the first sort of like uh, batsman keeper, rather as opposed to keeper batsman. So the priority was the, was with with the runs. But I think the interesting thing now is it's not just scoring runs, but it's the way you score the runs. You know, you've got to come out, you've got to dominate most of the time. You've got to take the game away from the opposition. 
Um, and Gilchrist was uh, he, he he took it to another level. Um, so the keepers have to do the keepers have to do that, and the batting is you know I mean the, the, it's so critical. Both parts of the game are so critical now. Um, and I just like I said, I just enjoy watching the guys bat it out, and I enjoy watching them play. Brilliant, Jack. It's been an absolute joy, a complete pleasure to talk to you, mate. It's been brilliant, and um, yeah, some of your stories are brilliant. I wish we could talk all day, to be honest. <laughs> and to be fair, we can at the moment, can't we? But it's been great. It's been it's been fun, and thank you for sort of giving us an insight into the mind of Jack Russell. It's um, yeah, very good of you. Thank you very much. Uh, that is all my pleasure, and uh, good luck to the lads for the season, and uh, hope we can get some cricket back at some stage, and, and and the lads get back on the field, and we can have some fun. We do hope so. Jack, thank you very much. It's been a, been been great. All right. Thanks, and, and, Jack. And stay Thanks safe. Yeah, Jack, look after yourself, I'll, lads. I'll, yeah. Cheers, Jack. I'll, take, I'll touch base with you this afternoon. Look after yourself, folks. I'll see you this summer sometime. Okay, mate. You lads take care, all right? Cheers, Jack. Podcast Network.